Welcome to the Hillside Church Denver podcast, the home for content from Hillside Church in Denver, Colorado. Hillside exists to help people belong to Jesus people, believe in Jesus, and become like Jesus. And we hope that what you hear today does just that. Go to hillsidedenver.org for more information about this community of Jesus followers. And if you're in the Denver area, we would love to welcome you in one Sunday morning. But for now, on to the pod. Today we're going to be turning to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25. And so I'm going to read the scripture for us, uh, and then Monica will come and share God's word. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus, he has inaugurated for us a new and living way through this curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed in pure water. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, good morning, everybody. Good to see you again from this angle. Um, Last time I was here, I shared with you about Prince Charles's coronation, and I, I really am not that much of an Anglophile, but I do have another story for you from across the pond. So uh, last year, September 2022, uh, Liz Truss became Prime Minister. And just to give you some like timeline context, uh, two days after she became Prime Minister after Boris Johnson, the Queen, passed. And so Liz Truss and her new government, her new leadership, they make these financial decisions. They're coming in to kind of right the country. Uh, but the problem was these decisions they made ended up tanking the pound sterling over there in the UK. And so the government kind of freaked out a little bit and they completely reversed course. And this led some people to question how long Liz Truss was going to be able to stay prime minister. And uh, The Economist actually put out a piece that questioned whether her prime ministership would last as long as a head of lettuce. Which, maybe some of you remember this, of course, naturally it led to a live stream um, by the Daily Mail titled, Live, Can Liz Truss Outlast a Lettuce? And we can actually, I think, there it was. So you could tune in. Uh, at any time to see how Liz was doing next to the lettuce. And uh, the predictions, unfortunately, were correct for Liz Truss. And actually, six days after this went live, she resigned. And so you could, at the moment she resigned, 21,000 people tuned in to the live stream where I think I've got the picture of what happens next. They played God Save the King and they put a tiny little crown on the head of lettuce um, because the lettuce was victorious over poor Liz Truss. Okay, let's take one more second to enjoy that. And thanks, Aaron, you can take that away now. Um, okay, why? <laughs> um, why am I sharing this with you? Uh, no offense to Liz Truss. I, she might be a lovely person. Uh, but whatever hope that the party had in her leadership, uh, it was met with lettuce. 
right? And her hope failed. And the lettuce eventually wilted. Um, but in this text, we have a different hope. And in this text, the author of Hebrews meets us not with a head of lettuce, but with a series of let us See what I did there? Uh, we're actually going to have three let us's in the text. Let us draw near to God. Let us hold on to our hope. And let us, how can we help one another? Let us help one another, provoking each other to love and good deeds. Um, and so, let us turn to our text. Uh, you're going to remember it now, though, when you pass a lettuce, when you get lettuce at the store, you're going to think of Hebrews. Uh, the author of Hebrews is anonymous, but clearly whoever they were, they were an incredibly well-educated, faithful Jewish believer. And they write this letter to a bunch of other really thoughtful Jewish believers. And there are all these themes in the book of Moses and the temple and the sacrificial system and the high priest. And in fact, our text this morning comes off of this kind of long discourse going through the sacrifices and going through the priesthood. And then we get to our text here. Therefore... And we have two senses that the author gives us to kind of summarize everything that they've been talking about. And so the first one comes in verse 19 there. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have boldness to enter the sanctuary through the blood of Jesus. So that's hearkening back to some temple imagery. Uh, see, there was the temple, and the kind of furthermost room in, as many of us know, was this holy of holies, the most holy place. And you and I would not have been allowed to enter that most holy place. That was like being in the very most real presence of God that you could get here on earth. And so as a result, it was just the one guy, just the high priest, just the one time of year that was able to go in and enter into that presence. But the author of Hebrews has been laying out this case that now we get to do that because of Jesus. So since we are able to do that, and then verse 21, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. Because that role, high priest, was really significant. When he would enter into that special place, he would actually wear the names of the 12 tribes, both symbolically and then like literally the names, on his like clothing. So that as he walked in, it was he was representing and mediating and interceding for the people there in front of God. And Jesus does that for us. And apart from that, the invitation to enter into the most holy place would not be a very nice invitation. Because apart from Christ, that is terrifying to go into the very presence of this most holy God. But Jesus is our high priest. And so we don't go in on our own. We go in with him. So, since we can enter into God's presence, and since we have Jesus, who is this high priest going with us, we have our first let us, okay? Verse 22, let us draw near. 
let us draw near. That same language is actually used earlier in Hebrews, let us draw near to the throne of grace. Maybe you've heard a pastor say that before you come to prayer, right? Let us draw near to the throne of grace. It's that same word because that's what we're being invited to do. We're being invited into God's throne room, invited into where he sits as king of the universe. Let us draw near to him. Okay, are there any Swifties in the room? Don't be shy. Raise your hand. Anyone? Swifties? Thank you. Thank you, Brianna. Okay, a Swiftie, for those of us uninitiated, is like a super fan of Taylor Swift. Taylor Swift is a singer for anybody who's like really out of the loop, okay? So there's Taylor Swift, and she has these Swifties, and Taylor's on a tour. It's like the biggest tour in music history right now. It's happening, the Eras Tour, and it's expected to gross a billion dollars by the time it's done. And people are obsessed with it. I mentioned it um, in class with some of my students, and like literally I didn't even realize I was who I was talking to, one of the girls was wearing a Taylor Swift sweatshirt. And she was like, ah, Taylor! Okay, so like, people love Taylor Swift, and they are paying so much money to go to these concerts. Uh, hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars. Right now, if you want to go online and get a ticket, the average cost is over $1,000 just for one person to go, and you're not even at the front, okay? Because people love Taylor Swift. Okay, the Swifties are going to her concerts, but that's not enough. And maybe you saw this, but a couple of days ago, uh, T-Swift was at a wedding rehearsal, and the Swifties found out where she was, and they swarmed the building. And I think I actually have, like, a social media. Yeah, they were just desperate to catch a glimpse of Taylor Swift exiting the building. And there's these other pictures and video you can see of them with all of their phones, like, jostling just for a chance to be near her in her presence. Okay, thanks, Aaron. That's good. Um, in the Old Testament, God was more unapproachable than Taylor Swift, okay? And yet that desire to be near him, I think, is something akin to that, like, desperation to just be where she is. And imagine if someone went up to one of those Swifties and said, hey, we talked to Taylor. She's going to give a private jam sesh okay, and you get to sit on the couch right next to her. Like, can you imagine how exciting that would be? Guys, we have something even better. We can draw near to God. We can draw near to God and be in his presence. How exciting is that? Let us draw near to him. Then we come to our second lettuce of the text, and this is in verse 23. Let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. All right, let us draw near to God, and let us hold on to this confession of hope. What is that that we're supposed to be holding on to? Well, it's, it's the hope in the gospel, Right? It's the hope that everything that this person in Hebrews has been saying is true. That Jesus really did live a perfect life and die and rise again so that we can be in relationship with God. That is the hope. And I know that Brandon has mentioned this before. It bears repeating. Biblical hope 
is really, really different than just like having a wish, right? Um, you mentioned I'm a teacher, sometimes I give tests, and I have students that'll come to me and they're like, oh, Mrs. Romig, I hope I get an A on this test. And I'm like, yeah, that's great, did you study? And they're like, no. And I'm like, you need a different hope, you know, <laughs> like that. You can wish, right, if you don't study, maybe you can really wish on a star that you're gonna get an A, and you know what, it just might happen. But unless you've studied and done the work and taken the notes, you can't really say that you hope for it in the biblical sense. Because hope is a reasonable expectation. And so when my students do study and they do take the notes and they come in, they can hope for a good grade. Because they can say, reasonably, I can expect that this thing is going to happen. And our hope is more assured because our hope isn't based on what we've done, but our hope is based on who he is, who's done it for us, right? It doesn't say, let us hold on to the confession of our hope without wavering, since you're so good at your faith. No, no, let us hold on to the confession of hope without wavering, since he who promised is faithful. Have you ever done that thing with kids where you hold their hands and you spin them around, right? I actually don't like doing it because I feel like I'm gonna pull their arms out of their sockets. But like, you know what I'm talking about. You hold the kid's hand, the kid holds your hand, and you spin them around in a circle. And then you keep spinning until you get dizzy and you fall over and the kid says, again, again. And you say like, no, I have a headache. Um, but that thing, right? You're holding on to the kid. In that moment, that kid might think that they're really holding on tight right? And as they're spinning around, they're thinking, like, I better hold on tight. But you're the grown-up. You're the one holding on tight. You're the one who's already scanned the area to make sure you're not going to whack into anything, right? You're the one who's really got a good grip to make sure they don't go flying. You're the one who stops before anybody throws up, okay? That kid can hold on tight with confidence because you're holding on tight to them. In our faith, we're that little kid holding on tight, right? And sometimes it feels like we're getting spun around and we start to feel a little dizzy. But we can hold on tight because God is the grown-up and he is the one holding on to us. We can hold fast to our confession of our hope because he is faithful and he's not going to let us go. And so I don't know where you are this morning, if you're in that place where you're thinking like, I don't know, I'm holding on by a thread. I'm feeling pretty dizzy. Like, be encouraged. God is holding on to you. He who has promised is faithful. Which brings us to our final let us. And this is really, I think, where the core of the text is. So we're going to settle into this one for a little bit. Verse 24. And let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Okay, let us watch out for one another. Let us encourage one another. How? By meeting together by meeting together. This is how it ties into the Gather series, if you've been kind of waiting for that connection, because it all comes down to this, meeting together. And that word that the author uses for meeting together 
I'm going to butcher it. Don't, I, I'm not good at pronouncing words in foreign languages. Uh, it, Epsinyagogen is my best give at it, okay? Epsinyagogen. And you can kind of hear a word in that, Epsinyagogen. Do you guys hear synagogue in there? Right? Okay. Because it's from the same kind of root, this Epsinyagogen, meet together, synagogue. Back in Massachusetts, I was a teacher at a Christian school, and we actually rented space from a Jewish synagogue. And it was because they had previously had a Jewish day school there that had closed down. So they had classroom space, they had gyms, and the school I worked for was looking for a permanent location. And it just, it, like, the timing worked out. We were able for a few years to rent space in a Jewish synagogue, which was an odd pairing to explain to people. It's like, yeah, we're Bradford Christian Academy. We meet in Temple Emmanuel. <laughs> Trust us, that's where we are. Um, but it was great, actually. It had like so many benefits because the rabbi and the cantor could come in and sometimes they'd come to chapel or they'd come to my Old Testament class. They had this huge Torah scroll right in their lobby and I would like take my class on field trips to go see the Torah scroll. It was awesome. Um, and it was great because it, it helped me explain for the kids a little bit of the Jewish culture of the Bible because Jewish people still meet in synagogues. And they were meeting in synagogues at this time. They were one place of worship for the Jewish people. And the other place we've already mentioned was the temple. Uh, the temple is this big theme all throughout the book of Hebrews, and it's referenced so often and in such a way that scholars are able to kind of date the book. And they say, we don't know who wrote Hebrews, but whoever wrote it, wrote it before 70 AD. Because in 70 AD, the temple gets destroyed, and the whole conversation kind of goes moot, right? But the author here is so concerned with the temple because people at the time when this was written were still worshiping there. That was the place where you offered sacrifices. That was the place where you met with God through the priests. And in fact, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at Acts chapter 2, and the earliest Christians were meeting in the temple because they were all Jewish background believers, and that was a holy place to be. And so they had the temple as the central place of worship for sacrifices and festivals, but the temple wasn't actually where, like, the weekly gathering took place. The weekly gathering took place in the synagogue. And synagogues came about during the exile because they didn't have access to the temple. The first one was destroyed. And so they had to find another way to meet together and share scripture and pray for one another and have fellowship. And so in a lot of ways, our weekly gathering time is paralleled to that synagogue. It was where they would read from God's word. It's why Paul goes there in each of the new places as he's traveling. He would go to the synagogue and try and convince the Jewish believers that Jesus was the Messiah. It's the weekly place of worship and fellowship. It was kind of like a community center. There was a lot of stuff going on there. And so today, our modern church is this really cool parallel to the synagogue. But the temple has been such a big theme, and I think the author is making this really cool case that the church is also the parallel to the temple, right? The church is in some ways the parallel to the temple. So think about the way the temple is used in the New Testament. Jesus is the temple of the Holy Spirit, right? He is the place where earth and heaven collided 2,000 years ago, the most real place of God's presence. And then Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, says 
Your body is a temple. Each and every one of us, when you believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells in you. And I want to affirm that, that like when you believe in Christ, you become a temple of the Holy Spirit. But also in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says that the church at Corinth is the temple. And it's a plural you, right? So like, yes, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit, but also you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Because what did they do at the temple? They made sacrifices for atonement so they could be in God's presence. And we don't offer sacrifices anymore because we have the ultimate sacrifice. But we gather together and we remember that sacrifice so that we can enter into the presence of God. Not that there's anything magical or mystical or special about this building, although it's so cool that there's going to be some work days to continue to to make it even more beautiful, right? But it's like as we gather together as a community and as we remember the sacrifice on our behalf, we are functioning as the temple. We are the place where we can enter into God's presence in this new and real and exciting way. So let us... Watch out for one another as we do that. What are we all supposed to be doing as we gather together and meet together in this new synagogue, in this new temple? Well, it's an interesting thing our text tells us to do. Uh, The language here, let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works. As we come together, we're supposed to watch out for each other to provoke each other. Have you ever, I mean, I've got two little kids and they provoke each other all the time. I'm not sure that's what the text is instructing us to do, right? But that word is really carefully chosen here. I think this is a good translation. Some English English translations uh, use the word spur. Let us spur one another on because the original word has this sense of like a jab that requires a response. Right? Provoke gets that. You're provoking someone, they respond. You spur someone, and they respond. I think I have a picture, my last picture of today, of a spur that a cowboy might wear um, on a horse. Yeah, there we go. Um, Sometimes it doesn't feel too good to be directed towards love and good deeds. Sometimes we need that little bit of provocation. We need that little bit of a spur to kind of remind us on the right direction. I'm not a cowboy. I'm a cowboy as much as I'm a Swifty. But I did some research into the spur thing and into this provoking, into this jabbing. And, like, it's not a weapon. It's not a weapon. We're not told to fight with one one another into good works, right? We're not called to be violent and aggressive and hurt each other. Be good. (laughs) Love, right? It's, It's this... It's this jab that sometimes it's not all that comfortable, but we're not wounding each other. And I think that's a really important point. Um, I think it was last week we talked about that, right? Like, we're, we're not coming together so as to, like, seek out the sin in each other's lives to wound each other with, here's all the ways that you failed. But instead, there's this sense that we're meant to, to work together and help one another out, watch out for each other to help us achieve more love and goodness. And it's a pretty good test right there. Um, If your provocation towards your brother or sister isn't leading to more love 
or more goodness, then you're not doing it right, right? Um, thank you, Aaron. Uh, so that can make us a little bit wary, right? Because we're like, okay, I'm supposed to provoke other people to love and goodness. I don't want to hurt anybody, so maybe I just won't do it, right? Maybe I just won't worry about that part of the text. But like, oh gosh, anytime we think like, I'm just going to skip that line and keep going, we'd better watch out because this is something we're called to, whether it's hard or not, to find that right level of what does it mean to provoke, but to provoke in the right way. And I think one of the key parts here is this idea of one another. It's not that there's one person in this room who got the spiritual gifting of provocation, and they're supposed to go around and just poke at everybody else, right? Not even Brandon. We're supposed to do this for each other because we're supposed to be willing to open ourselves up to that. We're supposed to be doing this for each other. We're supposed to be coming together to say, hey, here's how I'm going to open myself up for you to provoke me when necessary. Uh, there's lots of ways to do this. Sometimes people have like formal accountability partners, right, that they meet with and they share with. Um, sometimes it doesn't have to be that formal. I've had lots of good experiences with this sort of thing in my life, and there's one particular story that comes to mind that's... Um, it's a little funny, and it also has to do with a British person. So I feel like it's in theme. Uh, so a number of years ago, I was a counselor at a Christian camp as part of a missions trip. And uh, there was this other counselor who was from England, and he was a few years younger than me. He was like a college student going into college. And we just got on, got on really well, kind of that brother-sister kind of joking around relationship. And I remember so clearly he came to me one day, and he was like, Monica... I need to confess something to you. I was like, whoa, okay. What's, what's going on? What's going on? He's like, I have a crush on one of the other counselors. And don't worry, it wasn't me, okay? Because um, at first I was concerned, I, you know, but it wasn't me. But he, no, he had a crush on this uh, other counselor, this young woman who, and here's what makes it so charming, she was from Chicago, and she had this incredibly thick Chicagoan accent. And he, in his little British accent, was just enamored with it. And just like everything she said, he thought it was so beautiful. And like we'd be getting together as counselors to pray. And he'd be like, Monica, I can't focus on the Lord. I'm just focusing on her beautiful voice. And so, you know, he, he shared this with me. He shared this with me because he could trust me. Um, and sorry if either of them are now watching the live stream, The Secrets Out, this crush existed over 10 years ago. Uh, but at the time, I did a really good job of, of keeping that trust because he was my brother in Christ, right? And I was able to then share some things with him, right? Hey, this is what's keeping me from really focusing on God. These are the things that I'm really struggling with during this time. And it was great because, you know, it, we could pray for each other. And if he got paired up with her to go lead some sort of activity, I didn't even need to say anything. I just kind of made eye contact. I was like, hey, remember why you're here, right? And that was enough just to kind of provoke him back to God. And we were able to do that because his sin had nothing to do with me. And my sin had nothing to do with him. But our sin had to do with us. Because we were brother and sister in Christ, and we want each other to be more like Jesus. I don't, I mean, camp crushes and college counselors, it's a very far cry from what most of us deal with, right? 
But is there some way that we can do that for each other? How can we watch out for each other and open up that part of our lives to each other so that we can welcome in when we need to be provoked? Because the thing about sin is we get so nervous about it and we don't want anybody else to know. But that's what makes it stronger. And that's what brings us to a point where now we need like surgical intervention to deal with it. But before it gets to a scalpel, how can we instead just use a spur? As we meet together, how can we be open and honest with each other enough to say, hey, help me be more like Jesus. Help me love. Help me do good. And how can we encourage each other? Because that's really where the text ends, right? Not neglecting to meet together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Maybe you've been thinking as I've been talking, okay, okay, draw near to God. I can actually do that in the quietness and privateness of my own home, right? Hold on to a confession of hope. I can do that with my own family, okay? Uh, Keeping each other accountable. I can do that in a group text. So how does this meeting together play into that? Why does it matter if we get together every week physically in a space? And the word here, that epsinagogin, however we want to pronounce it, uh, that exact same version of that word, spelled exactly the same way with all the same cases and persons and all of that, grammatically the exact same word is used one other place in the New Testament. And it's used in 2 Thessalonians where Paul is describing Christians being gathered to Christ at his return. Because that's what we really believe is going to happen. That's part of our hope, is that Jesus is physically going to come back. And as believers, we are all going to be physically gathered to him. And so when we get together, our very presence acts as an encouragement of one another that, hey, that day is coming. Right? Just like we physically, we eat the bread and we physically drink the cup to remember Christ's death. We physically get together to point ahead to that day when Jesus is coming back. Because when we stand and we worship next to someone who's from a different generation than us, or we sit in front of someone who's from a different ethnic background than us, or we walk down the aisle beside someone from a different socioeconomic class than us, That physical being with each other in this way is pointing ahead to Christ and his return. Like there is something significant in gathering together, and that's why we do it. That's why we're not turning Hillside into an online-only church where you just text in your prayer requests or whatever the case is. Like there is something beautiful and meaningful that happens as we come together physically because we are physically looking forward to the embodiment of our Savior returning and gathering us together with him. Um, We are going through a name change, becoming Hillside. And as uh, Brandon mentioned, Jonathan and I were part of a church back in Massachusetts that had a similar kind of naming uh, process, okay? And we were on the East Coast, and so for a little while there was the thought of, why don't we call ourselves Lighthouse? Lighthouse Church, East Coast Lighthouse Church. 
And there was a problem with that because the church was located about an hour away from any beach. So it didn't make a whole lot of sense, okay? But I understand why churches name themselves Lighthouse. That's beautiful imagery. It's a light shining into the darkness. Until you really stop and think about it, um, because what's the purpose of a lighthouse? It's to tell people, like, this area's dangerous. Don't come near here, okay? And so sailors see the lighthouse, and if they're a smart sailor, they go in the other direction. The point of the lighthouse is to say, like, stay away from us. Uh, no shade on churches named lighthouse. A little bit of shade on churches that act like a lighthouse, right? We are so bright with the love of Christ. Don't come near us, okay? Um, not, not what we're going for. But we are, we're called to be lights. And as the Spirit dwells inside each and every one of us, um, we are a light. And as we gather together, we are an even brighter light because lights together are more shiny. I do. I have one more picture. That's right. I've got one more picture. So the, a light that's important to me that um, speaks to my heart is the Sitco sign in Boston. <laughs> Okay, uh, so some of us are familiar with it in the room. Uh, it's a 60 by 60 advertisement for Sitco, like the company, um, but for whatever reason in Boston, it's beloved, right? It's beloved. We love the Sitco sign. And you can kind of see it like has this little pattern of lights and then it flashes and people get really excited about it. And uh, when I was in college, I lived about a stone's throw from the Sitco sign. It's right near Fenway Park where the Red Sox play. And I would joke with my friends who also went to college in the city, like, Psh, I can walk around the neighborhood at night because if they ever get lost, just look for the Sitco sign and I can find my way home, right? And in its modern version, it's been around for a long time, but in its modern version, it's made up of 218,000 little LED lights. I want you to imagine just one of those lights all on its own. Okay? I mean, an LED light, that's bright. That's a bright light. But is that one little bright light going to be able to guide college student Monica back to her dorm room? No. Right? But when you put those lights together and they make the Sitco sign, now it's a beacon. And it's a beacon saying, come this way. Come this way. This is where you're supposed to be. And what's so cool, and I'm going to end with this, what's so cool is that for us, it's not just that, like, you're a little light, and together we're the Sitco sign, and then you're a little light. But somehow, like, as we get together, as we corporately draw closer to God, as we corporately hold on to the confession of our hope, as we corporately provoke each other towards love and goodness, our little light gets brighter, it gets brighter so that for the rest of the week, we are acting like a little homing beacon, calling people out of the darkness and into the true light of Christ. Because he's who we reflect, and he is the source of whatever light we have. And so as we come together, as we gather together, we get to be charged more fully to do what Christ has called us to do in the rest of our week and in the rest of our life. Would you guys... Pray with me. Lordy, thank you that you have given us each other. And we confess those ways that it's hard, but we thank you for the ways that it's good. And we thank you that you provided that way for us to be together and for us to be with you. 
let us draw near to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.